Ochoa, I have a question for you on this day. And my question is, we are recording this on September 11th, 2021. And I want to know, where were you on September 11th? Where were you at when America was changed forever? On the first plane, I was actually driving to school. I was almost at school. And when I walked in, somebody told me that it happened. And so I got up into my classroom. I had first period conference. So I turned it on and was watching because at that time we had TVs in the classroom. So I was teaching geography at the time, which is fascinating to have taught geography right in the middle of this moment in our history because everything that had just happened was geography. And so... I uh, was watching it, and of course, the second tower fell about the time that my other class, right when I, my, our classes started. So everybody in the whole school had it on. I was in high school. I wasn't, in, so we all had it on, and the kids were, we were, they were worried, and they were scared, and of course, everybody was, you know, everybody was, and we were all under attack, and, and uh the third plane hadn't come in yet. The Pentagon hadn't happened yet. and uh, But it did happen while we were watching. So what I did was, you know, we like I said, teaching geography. And they're the five themes of geography is what we usually base. I based almost everything I did off of that. And so I had the kids get out their notebooks. They're learning geography notebooks at the time. And Anyway, and they responded, and but I told them to respond through the lens of the five themes of geography. Of course, for those of you who don't know what that is, um, it's location, place. Place is what things look like. That was what most people, most of the kids responded, was how place changed in an instant. The place of New York. And then... Um, movement. We talked about, you know, so then they just all responded, but I asked them to respond through that. Um, movement is, uh, of course, the movement of goods, services, and ideas, and people. And uh, when we realized that was happening in Manhattan, that was one of the things that, that the news was bringing up is that this was right in the middle of Manhattan, right there where our banks are, you know, in Wall Street. And so the kids immediately being astute, because I had honors kids and stuff. And they talked about how the money and the way we do business is going to change. So the kids really were very reflective through doing that. They were really reflective on how things are about to change. The other one was human environment interaction. And so they started talking about, but what's going to happen to the people with all the smoke and all of this. So we really started talking about that. And so it was a, it was kind of a, I don't know if that was the wisest thing to do, but what it did is it gave the students a venue to sort through what was going on. And it seemed to have calmed them down just a little bit, kind of gave them a lens in order to look at this and um, and and do something with what was going on. Of course, when the the last plane hit the, you know, or when that plane hit the Pentagon later on, I learned that my, because I was, I was also a presenter. I used to present with National Geographic 
with the Texas Alliance for Geographic. So I would, just like I do training for reading and writing, I did geography training as well. And I would go around and teach teachers in geography through National Geographic. And when when we did that, um, I, I learned that on the plane that hit the Pentagon, um, well, and let me just go back. In 1998, my relationship with National Geographic, which of course is in Washington, D.C., um, I had the opportunity to go and spend a whole month in Washington, D.C. with National Geographic. So the people that were in charge of the education program, the lady who did all of the uh, uh, the lady who did all of the the organization, and then the the man that was in charge of making it happen, as far as like who we were in contact with, um, they were on that plane. Those two people were on that plane because they had gone to National Geographic. Also, did an explorers program with kids, and these two actually were escorting six children who had one an opportunity to go to National Geographic and be one of the young explorers. So National Geographic lost two people that I knew um, had met for them escorting us as teachers. And we spent a whole month with them. So uh, it was a very somber and frightening time. Of course, when you get home and you had three, I had three kids and my kids were in elementary, all of them were. And my son, of course, you know, he's now 30. So that, um, it's been, you know, I don't know. It's been quite a time, uh, watching them grow up in this world where we're now afraid. I do do remember being afraid of the cold war. I mean, I did grow up in the middle of fear and you would think after the, after the wall went down in 89, you know, in 90, 91, I guess it was 89, 90, 91, uh, that fear kind of went away and that we had gotten comfortable with our lives. So I think it was just really a, a moment in time that, you know, you just can't go back. I kind of would equate that with maybe how the people felt when when uh, Pearl Harbor was hit. I can't imagine what they felt like, but I think this was about probably the same emotion. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Craft and Draft podcast. I figured it would be it would be a faux pas of us to not address the day we are yeah. recording this on. So, um, mm-hmm. if people were affected, I mean, everyone was affected. But if you had family yeah. members, our thoughts are with you, and prayers, obviously, yes. and everything else that goes with that. Hopefully, you are uh, taking care of yourselves and and know that. We always pay attention to these things because this is something that's is vastly important, right? We're Americans, and that that shaped all so much of the way our world is today. If it, sh- uh, it sure to, did, to put it lightly. So, in any case, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Craft and Draft podcast. That's Pamela Cho. I'm Jacob Chastain. We discuss reading and writing workshop and everything kind of in between in teaching. We're both seventh grade English teachers down here in Texas. We work at the same school and the same team, just two doors down from each other. And we are doing this experiment of our craft and draft journal, seeing how it works with a variety of students and taking questions and talking to the audience about everything else. So if you are here because you have been listening to us this whole time, thank you so much for being a listener. If you are new, well, we have a perfect well, perfect might be a little strong word. We have a great show for you today all about 
creating voice, finding voice, that path of getting to voice with students, and maybe even a little about teacher voice. I don't know. We'll see where this conversation goes. But this is the Craft and Drive podcast, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Before we jump in to everything, we have some listener questions, Miss Ocho. Okay. Are you ready for some of these? I like it. You know, we've never officially talked about how we wanted to address listener questions. Our initial idea was to like bring, like just answer them, right? Just maybe, maybe right. if people ask enough questions, hey, we'll make episodes about them, right? That was like our initial idea. And, but once we started getting more, we never really talked about where in the show to do it. I feel like doing it at the top of the show is nice because it kind of, it filters into everything else. And also people, you know, maybe they're listening, they're waiting they're like, you know, they're waiting every week to see if we respond to them or something. So I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll change it. But do you feel like it would be better to do these at the end or the beginning? It's kind of fun to record this conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it would probably be best to do it at the be- beginning just because we're so appreciative of the fact that they're listening. Yeah. So maybe maybe it would be the polite thing to do. That's right. So, well, we'll keep it. If people, you know, maybe we'll try and end one one day, close out an episode like that. I think it's good for us to at the beginning. That way we get to it because I can see us talking for an hour and then going, oh, yeah, we had questions. And then now we're going to go yeah. for another 45 minutes. And we, just, you know, yeah. we, we need boundaries on how much we talk. And we don't want anybody to think they're an afterthought. That's right. <laughs> So they'll be the beginning of our thoughts. Just because we talk too much, right? That that's literally what it would that how that would happen. Well, I know how you handle it at school. The fact that we talk too much, I, you know, every morning, ladies and gentlemen, he walks by <laughs> my room and waves and almost sprints so that I won't talk to him. The other day, I had to like with two hands wave him in because I had a question, and he was like, ah. Okay, I guess I'll go in there. You know, that is much more for me than you, because I know that I'll start talking and then, you know, I have copies to make and things to do. So, yes, no. I do. It's it's a scary time. You and I with birth, both uh, first period off is dangerous times because we could get distracted extremely I think easily. That's true. That's true. But in any case, our first question, um, we're going to talk about both of these are very similar. They kind of I think they both came right off of our um, resistors episode. So two episodes ago. Um, and our first one is from Indira or Indira. I think it's Indira. Um, apologies if I mispronounce your name wrong, but this is kind of a long email. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll respond to it. But she says, I was hired to teach seven and eighth graders at a private school and found out once I got there, I also had to teach all of the subjects. She says, I am a literacy teacher. I've also taught fourth grade. I have two major concerns. For one, I have a student who is dyslexic and disrupts the class by having a verbal tantrum when we go into independent reading time. He does not have his own personal reader, even though I've reminded the class verbally and have written on the board to bring in their own every day and doesn't like the book's that's in our class library, which I refresh one, refresh once a week. Uh, we're two weeks into school now, probably three now as of reading this. Um, he and another student 
slash resistor have also has issues with math. I've paired him with a strong partner and his acting out has diminished drastically in that area. The other student I found out later on is two years behind the rest of the class. He's also a major resistor and I have been modifying his independent lessons on a daily basis since he does not participate well with the rest of the class. He's also very immature. He doesn't really follow social rules well. I want a successful school year and have stated as much to the class. I am a great encourager and will spew out my philosophy to the class on a regular about how successful I want this year to be. I'm looking for other ways to reach out to both of them. Any suggestions on how to engage them? She says, as far as music, we can only play um, Baroque music. Baroque. Not Baroque, sorry. Look at me That's being okay. an English teacher. <laughs> No, I just, I, I know that because I used to coach the academic decathlon team. Jacob, well, I'm gonna, and we I'm gonna, had to learn about opera. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about that. So Baroque music, not uh, vitamin quartet music, which is more modern. Thanks in advance for your response. So Baroque, first of all, you got to tell, you got to educate me on what this is. Because I don't, I'm a musician and I don't know what that is. I've been playing music and listening to music my entire life. I was in band. I don't know what that is. I'm sure my band teachers would be horrified if I didn't know this. Well, the only thing that scares me about you asking me to define it is uh, I just maybe know how to pronounce it. (laughs) So what do you think it is, I guess, is the better question? Well, you know. Here, while you do that, I'm going to Google it. Okay, you know Mozart. Oh, you're going to Google it, see if I'm right. Okay, let's see. I'll apologize to all real musicians because I'm going to qualify right now. I love music. I'm not a musician. Uh, Anyway, no, it's it's old. It's it's the older uh, music. It comes, you know, it's probably right before our opera time i would say probably around the 16 15 maybe 1400s right in there i know that i gave you the about 300 years there uh probably comes from italy and uh keep going what did you find out yeah i mean you're not you're not off right it's western classical music from approximately uh it's about 1580 to 1750 all right well at least i hit Somewhere at 16. I did all right. That's not too bad. Keep going. Um, but it's, I mean, it's just that what what's called there, right? It's musicians are expected to be accomplished improvisers of both solo, melodic lines, and accompanied parts. What defines this type of music? Um, composers and performers use more elaborate musical uh, ornamentation, made changes in musical notation, and developed new instrument instrumental playing techniques. So this seems like kind of like the the real rice. Pre- so this is like Bach is like a good example of this, I suppose. Right, I would think so. Or right before him. Yeah, All right, right about so, that time. so that's interesting. Hey, so I went my off. I went my off. I feel kind I mean, of proud of myself. <laughs> you had more of it than I did for sure. So okay. In looking at this, so she says, I imagine she brings up the music. So she says vitamin quartet. I don't know what that is either. I'm going to lie. That I better not. Quartet. Because I imagine she brought up the music. It might be a vitamin. It might be vitamin. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm keeping that in there so people can know that I'm kind of. They can all know that this is really live. We are. We did not prepare our pre-plan our answers. Is it a. American group. Well, let's see, that's a person. I think I think these are people. Oh, okay. Or this is like people that cover stuff, maybe like more modern 
kind oh, okay. of orchestral covers. That's what it looks like. If I'm wrong, Adira, you can just email me and just school me on all of this information. <laughs> um, regardless, I imagine she. the reason I wanted to double to uh, talk about that was because I feel like uh, she might have brought that up because I talk about how I've used music in my class so often. I use it in writing quite a bit. Um, it's one of my like major ways I bond with students is having modern music in the classroom and listening to, you know, modern hip hop and rap and stuff clean, obviously, but still, um, within the bounds of that. But so it sounds like she's got some resistors in her class who let's start the first one. It's a, it's a student who is dyslexic and disrupts and has a verbal tantrum every time they go into independent reading time. So before we even get started, I just want to say the quote that you and I pass around often. Um, we, we, I think we said it last week, um, as we were just talking, you know, through student issues and whatnot is a student that is acting out is demonstrating a need, right? That that phrase is 100% true, like every single time. Now, what they need is always what's in question, right? That that need is the is the variety, and it sounds like you know if if a, if a student is dyslexic and is having verbal tantrums when independent reading is about to start, I mean, what what can we extrapolate from that? What can you infer, Miss Ochoa, about this student who is verbally groaning, complaining every time she says, "All right." Open your books. We're going to have independent reading time. What can we infer about this student? I think she probably finds reading difficult. I think she's probably, to me, that would probably be the number one thing is that I think she probably finds it difficult to read. Uh, I would say that she. It's a he. Oh, he. I'm sorry. My fault. Uh, He. Sorry about that. He needs to. He's never found anything. I mean, he's never found the right book. You know, John. Uh, Dolan Miller always talks about finding the right book. And I know that maybe there's not anything. He's already made up his mind. He's not going to find the right book because he's not open to a new book. So I would, I would at least find out what he likes. Like maybe does he watch any kind of movies or anything like that? And then what I mean, as far as music, I know she doesn't have to listen to, you know, you don't have to listen to the music, but you could, Kind of ask him what you know, what his favorite songs are. Does he play any games? I, I would just try to find anything at all that would be you know, just kind of have a conversation. What's your favorite thing that you like to do? Uh, and kind of just see if you can can find a way to tie in that way. But my my guess is when he reads, he just sees words on the page. He doesn't make meaning out of the sentences. They don't go together. Uh, and I think that he would need to. My cats are fighting. This is terrible. <laughs> they just <laughs> always fight. But sorry about that. But uh, so anyway, that's that's one thing that I would, I mean, my approach would be to, to try to find out exactly what, if he has a reading issue. I mean, is he dyslexic? I know she already said that. I don't know. But I do know that when I have students that really throw a fit about reading they don't feel confident as readers. And most of the time I would, another thing I would do is I would find a time to have him read something to you out loud so you can hear him read. Because if you can hear them read, you'll know real fast if they can read it or they can't because they'll stumble over the words. They'll, um, you know, you can even mark, you know, read along with them and mark what words he misses and it could be just a, a combination. It could be an input-output issue. Uh, 
um, it's just a ton of things that can be wrong, but I would, I would just start with investigating, but I would find out anything and everything that he might like and enjoy and see if you can find it in story form for him. Even if it's a short little brief paragraph or two, um, and try to get him interested in something that way, even if it's music. Yeah. She closes out her email by talking about, you know, her primary goal, at least according to this is to connect with them on a, on a deeper level. Right. And obviously that connection, every teacher wants that connection to be within content. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's other ways to connect. And that's why she brought up the music to double before I get to some of the more different ways, you know, in, on the reading side, you know, this, this student, they're in middle school. You know, there's a quote that says, and I'm paraphrasing, but it says middle school is where reading goes to die. You know, there are statistical, uh, De- there's there's tons of data that shows that this is when students start losing interest in reading. Um, it, it starts to die in middle school, and then it really goes away in high school. And it, it's primarily driven because once you get to the older grades, reading becomes so much more about uh, performing rather than enjoyment, right? Um, our test forces this. Our curriculum forces this. The, the nature of what we as a society have deemed correct in these age groups – forces that we want kids to be, you know, we start talking about workforce ready as early as middle school and that, Mm -hmm. that drives some of this and you take a non-reader and then all of a sudden they are forced to perform all the time rather than just enjoy and practice. They're going to hate it. They're going to resist. And what happens is we tend to, the, the, we want to rush the process, right? If you have a, a student who is so anti-reading that they're verbalizing this every time you start reading, you have a lot of work to do with that kid to get them to where their their filter is is brought down a little bit to where they're they're not such a resistor. And this starts with making as many low stakes entries into reading as possible and to instilling in them that uh, what they're doing right now isn't going to be punished, even if they don't read, right? You're not going to tell them this. You're not going to say, Hey, if you don't read, you're not going to get punished, but you're going to, you're going to model this, right? You're not trying to encourage them not to read, but you're going Mm -hmm. to slowly show them that it's, it's just every day. And then you, you give them different things. Now I will say, I know you're at a private school and I know private schools have different, um, regulations and they might have regulations on what you can give students considering that you can only play certain types of music around them to connect that way. Um, Mm -hmm. but if graphic novels, manga, um, information books, like I got, so I have this kid in my class right now who is, um, he was out of school for a year and a half. Um, I talked to his mom at meet the teacher. He, she was like, you know, we didn't read. We don't have a lot of books in the house. We don't have a lot of money. You know, we would go to the library, but to be honest, we don't really go to the library. And so I was like, okay, no problem. I got him Right. And so he ended up one day, he goes, do you have any Dungeons and Dragon books? And I was like, do I? And I pulled out these two Dungeons and Dragon manuals. And for people who aren't familiar, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is obviously it's a board game and whatever, but it's really imaginative. And there's tons of like manuals and they, they have really expensive ones. They also have cheaper ones that are like from Scholastic that are just like, you know, the monster manuals of like the different monsters, rule books and stuff. And I had like two of those. And he was so excited to read those, right? And so I found my way in with him. I have another reader who 
literally Monday or Tuesday, rather, he started this week saying, oh, my God, I hate reading. It's just a bunch of words. Right. And I immediately wanted to pop off and be like, yeah, it's a bunch of words if you're not comprehending. Right. If you're not in Mm -hmm. the reading zone, as Nancy Atwell puts it, and you're imagining these things. Um, But. I, I, I kind of resisted. I said it for a minute and then I stopped and then I went and found a graphic novel. It's called New Kid, but it's it's kind of about uh or maybe it's not New Kid. That's not the one I gave him. I forget which one I gave him, but it's the it's a brand new one, but it's it's a more mature graphic novel. It deals with him living among his parents who are drug addicts and stuff. And it took like one reading session. He goes, okay, I like this. And then the next day he was like, man, this is really good. Right. And just finding those different entry points into all of these resistors. So, I mean, when it comes to making these connections and getting them to accept this process, one, don't make it punished, right? Don't punish them for what they're doing. Even if they're not really reading, just trust the process, talk with them constantly, ask them what they're interested in, constantly show them things. I always, I would, if I had a really struggling reader, I would call library tutorials is what I would call them and bring kids into the library with me. And we would just shop the library and just look at books. And I would watch what they did, right? Do they look at the descriptions? Do they know where description is the book, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm gathering information. If they don't even know how to find the description, like on a hardcover book, for instance, that gives me so much information about their reading lives and how much work I need to do to get them engaged. So I don't know. That's what I would do on the reading side in terms of just connection. I mean, just talk with them and find every entry into building those relationships. You know, like you said, right. Talking to them about video games or whatever, you don't, if you can't play the music in your classroom, you can still talk about it. You can still ask them, Hey, what's your favorite song? Oh, that sounds cool. Right. Open your phone right then and download it. I do that to students all the time. I'm playing music in the hallway, right? You know, this is so true. I'm blaring my speaker. Oh, I know. And the did, kids- you've, you've, you've blown over all my Disney. I try to get my Disney out there and nobody can hear it. Cause the, hoop, but the, boop, 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 but, the but the kids come by, right. And kids don't even mind. They're like, Oh, what are you playing no, today? Right. And I, I'm, I'm making these, uh, musical connections with all these kids. And, and, you know, I always say, uh, or I don't, what's his face. Who says it? Um, What's his name? Uh, Alzheimer. Uh, Jonathan Alzheimer. He wrote uh, Next Level Teaching. I had him on the podcast. But he talks about every every teacher in a building is is every student's teacher. And so I feel like that. But I make all of these connections with these kids because of this music. And they'll go, oh, do you play this? And I go, no, who's that? And then I'll just download it on my phone. And guess what I'm playing the next day? I'm playing that song. And so... You know, there there's small ways to do that, but we spent a while on this this question. Do you have anything else to add uh, to these ideas, Miss Ochoa? Well, something that you <clears throat> when you brought in the manual, you know, there's uh, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons is not the only topic game that has manuals like that, right? So that could be definitely something you could consider. Uh, also, anything nonfiction. A lot of times, kids are really interested. So really find out what they like, and maybe even bring in some nonfiction. Uh, books and things like that. I mean, shoot, that's what my son would read. He would always, he didn't like to read, but I'd always watch him and he'd be, he'd be reading this military thing. I know all about the SR-71. He's probably my best education because he would be reading things and they go, hey, mom, did you know about that? So then we would read about it. And to this day, we still read books together when we can. So uh, so anyway, I would I would even go with the nonfiction as much. Just find out what they're interested in, see if you can find anything, and then give it to them in chunks. 
chunk the reading, even if it's even if it's their their silent sustained reading, especially if they're resistors, you might just chunk it a little bit so it doesn't look so ominous. So this question actually connects to our second question. And I think the second question is going to lead into the topic of our show, which is this one's from Megan. And she responded. I I, I sent out on my Instagram. I said, hey, we we're going to record tonight. Do you have any topics? So this is what she sent um, as a question. So she said, first of all, really enjoy your podcast. Thank you very much. Um, She said. I'm a first-year teacher in fourth grade and trying to implement the workshop model for writing. Would love some ideas and guidance for young boys who are super pragmatic and practical. I'm trying to encourage them to be more detailed than descriptive in their writing. Thanks for all your work and helping other teachers. So I want to tell a story on the show. And Pam, you're going to be familiar with this story because it involves when we first worked together. Okay. I had a student who hated... He liked reading. He loved mostly graphic novels, but he loved he I mean, well, loved is a strong word. He liked reading. He hated writing. He saw no point in it. He was like, there's no reason for me to do this. I don't care. I don't want to do this. No matter if it was an essay, a poem, free choice, he was not into it. Um, you had him. Um, I I don't remember the exact circumstances, so you might need to refresh my memory, but you did like a at lunch, you had was it the makerspace that you had open at lunch? Is yep. that what it was? Yeah, yeah, I ran the makerspace at lunch. Mm-hmm. So this student, and you're going to remember it in a second, he was he found a broken typewriter in the makerspace. Yes, and you ended up connecting with this child who was really into this typewriter. So I'm going to pitch it to you if you remember. Trying to remember. A lot of kids love that typewriter. They did. But so he ended up wanting to, he ended up becoming obsessed with it. He asked you if he could fix it, correct? Do you remember him? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He would actually, yeah, because when the kids broke it, he would actually tinker with it just about every day. So... Mm -hmm. I had the, I was a literacy coach there, right? And I had one class, right. and so I saw him at the end of the day. But you, that was after lunch, right? And you mm-hmm. just started telling me that, oh yeah, you know, he's just, you know, otherwise he, he, you know, he was one of the kids that like he could be a behavior issue, right? He would disrupt classes and whatnot. But yeah, in but, this makerspace, but, but he would come in. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, he would come in every day. I mean, and, and immediately go straight to the typewriter, and start start working with the typewriter and trying to fix it and, and asking me all kinds of questions about how it works. And mm-hmm. anyway, go ahead, keep going. Well, and so in hearing this, I was like, okay, so you're a mechanical person. So the way I got him to start writing was I, I just had these conversations. I didn't do it from day one, but I just had conversations like, oh, you're doing the typewriter. So how do you know about that? And I was like, hey, Miss Ochoa told me, you know. We would just talk, and eventually I was like, once I had like a substantial amount of notes about just like what, like kind of like a daily log of what he was doing, I said, look, these are all the things that you've been telling me, right? It's been like three days. This is everything that you've said. I was like, this is writing. I was like, you can write about this. And he goes, I can? I was like, yeah. I was like, write about the this process. I was like... I was like, you know, in history, when you wear, when you read like a journal entry from like a general or something, like you know, it's been four days in the wilderness. You know, I was like, you can write that way. You can make it more creative like that, or you can just write down the facts. You know, like what's wrong with the typewriter? What did you try and everything else? 
And he was like, okay, I think I can do that. And so he just spent all of this time talking about this typewriter thing. And then over time, once he had like kind of like a volume of information written down, Mm-hmm. We took that and we manipulated it in so many different ways. He wrote a poem about this typewriter process. He wrote an informational <laughs> piece about this typewriter process. He ended up taking it into different things because he also worked on like, like he would tinker at home, right? He would work on the lawnmower, on a car. And so it started branching out. And before you know it, he has all of this practical writing. Um, and every once in a while, you know, I would push for like some to, to go to her question, you know, she wants them to be more descriptive. You know, once he started writing, volume is always important first, is in my opinion. If they're mm-hmm. if they don't have a volume of writing, you can't really fix much. They don't have enough practice. So once he had like a good chunk, you know, started pushing just a little bit. Hey, what what did that like you say the gear was broken, but what did it look like? Right? Did, was it greasy and like you know, looking for those details? And, you know, we, we made progress and that was that. So that's my answer to it is when you have these practical kids and a lot of them are boys, right? It's just, I think it's just the way uh, male brains work. If they, if they're, especially if they're close to their dads and stuff who are very kind of macho men, like I didn't have that growing up, but I've had a lot of students like that. They, you know, they like getting dirty, they like messing with their hands, being very practical. Sometimes it's hard for them to get invested in the more artsy, sensitive side of English. But there's more to English than that, right? That's the stuff we love as English Mm -hmm. teachers. But, you know, people write technical manuals for a living and make good money. Uh, Oh, yeah. They sure do. (laughs) They sure do. Do you have anything to add to that? Oh, no, I think I think that's that's perfect. I mean, I, I forgot all about that. So that's kind of kind of a neat, neat story. And that was you. I mean, that was one of our original, like, indirect yeah. collaborations that happened. But yeah, I, we, I, I, it's, that, that's the fun part, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, let's go back and, and, and remind me because I'm I love that story. But give me the heart of that question one more time, if you don't mind. The heart of the question was just engaging um, these boys and they're very pragmatic and practical and she's trying to encourage them to be okay. more detailed and descriptive. So taking prag, their pragmatism, their practicalness and be like, well, this is could you, I mean, you could imagine the student right here. Well, this is the answer, right? These, these are the facts. Mm-hmm. This is, this is what I need to say. You told me to say it and I said it right. But she's wanting mm-hmm. them to develop their writing into a little bit more of subs- substance. Well, you know, I'm going to go back to to words on that just a little bit. And uh, we had this moment just the other day in the classroom. And I, right now I can't think of the, the word for some reason. All of a sudden the word just uh, escaped me. But it was a word that had more than one meaning. And the meaning was, it was a word that we came across. And it was very practical. And they, they knew exactly, why can't I think of that meaning? I mean, I had it all in my head, and then now it's not there. But anyway, so the kids were like, well, this is what that, that means. And I said, is there another meaning for that word? And then the the boy that's probably, like you said, the most practical in the room, he was like, well, can I look it up? And I said, well, sure, let's look it up. And so then he started looking up the word. He goes, I didn't know it meant that. It means something else. I said, well, does it mean more than that? And so we kind of did that. And then, um, and I think we were really talking about symbolism and uh, I don't know why I can't think of that word. If I could think of that word, this would be a better conversation all of a sudden. But anyway, the whole point is when they're doing something practical, show them all the different meanings of maybe one of the words that they use and see if there's 
if it could symbolize something. So like if you have to have them write something creative, maybe they can start with their practical side and then turn around and say, what else could that mean? I mean, could that represent something else? Uh, you know, we we use parables and, and allegories and all kinds of stuff all the time um, where you might write this whole story about a machine and how it works, but what you're really doing uh, but the machine doesn't work right until there's a relationship between the human and the machine. So now, what are you really talking about here? So could you actually start with their practical side and then move them move them to a more abstract way of thinking? That's where I was so, going with that, but I can't think of that word. Well, like that. so here, and this is why I said it was going to connect to our topic. So our, our, our initial topic of the show is this idea of voice, right? And mm-hmm. I think... I think this pairs really nicely with this conversation uh, because a lot of students come to us with, uh, you know, the, even if they have good mechanics, right? A lot of them come into our classrooms and they write kind of stock writing, so to speak, you know, in middle mm-hmm. school. And what I've seen this year, every year it's a little bit different, but in what I've seen this year is a lot of my students are. They they write kind of in a very it's it's narrative, but it's it's very driven by kind of what teachers always expect, right? It's like a I went to the store in here and this is the lesson I learned, right? And they have like these very like the hooks of I'm gonna tell you about the time I did this, and then it closed with, and that's my story, right? <laughs> like literally right. <laughs> those lines. And I spend so much of my time teaching students how to cut out that stuff because it doesn't do anything to their piece. Mm-hmm. Um and and that that's that's a certain thing. But what happens though is developing voice takes it's, it's kind of a process and we're always, you voice is one of those things. It's kind of like, you know, it when you see it, right? It's, you can read an author and you're like, yep, this is, this is their voice. Or you see a student and you're like, man, this is, it pops, right? There's the language you're using. Like it really, it it becomes something off of the page. And a lot of students don't have that, right? It's just kind of stock, boring kind you know they're they're not really using a lot of descriptive language and if they are using descriptive language it's very hackneyed or kind of typical language and um voice becomes something it's it's kind of this nebulous idea i mean even talking about voice to students i found difficult do you have a like do you have a stock definition that you tell students or how do you even approach voice even talking about it with kids well i think I think sharing authors who have a distinct voice or style uh, is one way to to go about doing that is if you model for it. For example, we just did, um, yeah, I went ahead and pulled Oranges from Gary Soto. So we read that poem, and then the next day we read Seventh Grade. This is with all my on-level. This is not with my honors kids. And so anyway, as we were talking, we were sharing both of them. Well, you know, in seventh grade, I I started asking. So when when he got to the part where he speaks French and he really doesn't speak French, and he's like looking at the teacher going, oh my gosh, don't give me away because I've got to impress the kid. 
But anyway, in oranges, he pulls out and I said, what is this like? Is this like something we've read already? And so they said, oh, yeah, when he didn't have enough money for the girl to buy her chocolate, but he didn't want the teach the sales lady to know. So then I I reminded them that these were both written by Gary Soto. Do you see anything similar in his style? And they were like, oh, you know, so we kind of talked about that. So I kind of try to show, you know, with a little small author studies, you know, like they do have a particular style and how then I think what you could do later is bring in someone else and say, okay, now look at this and see how's it different than this style. Now, what is yours breed like? You know, and then I think sometimes imitating is another way to help them find uh, voice and style. Um, anyway, that's what I have on my head right now. I mean, that's pretty, I would say mine's pretty close to that too. You know, I, I do a lot of, you know, we had a, a listener ask us, um, and it just in DMS, you know, about how many mini lessons I do. And, uh, I had said that I do a lot of short mini lessons and, you know, you and our partner tend to do longer ones sometimes, sometimes shorter, just kind of depends. But I really love showing students a bunch of snapshots of stuff. And I think it, I think it covers a lot of ground to do that. But I also think in the, in the, the world of voice, it allows us to experience a bunch of different vibes. And what usually happens is on a, on a student level, especially if you're inexperienced, what ends up happening is imitation comes first, right? This is the mm-hmm. the beauty of Jeff Anderson and everyone else that kind of falls in line with this idea. And, you know, Abydos obviously connects to this as well and everything else that we've talked about on the show. But the idea of you, you when you're learning something, you know, you imitate, you imitate what you like. So Part one is kind of figuring out what do you like, right? What what mm-hmm. words stand out to you? What words make you think? What types of passages? What types of books? What type of stories? And you start there. You know, when I was a young kid, I've always been drawn to words and I in books. And I think part of it is because of the way I was raised, you know, books were an escape, you know, to a different world. And so as a young person, you know, I remember writing stories that very much just imitated Tolkien and, and the Hobbit. You know, I, I've told the story that, you know, the Hobbit changed my life when my fourth grade or maybe it was fifth grade read it out. Mr. Hansen, he read the book out to us and I was like, holy crap, books don't have to be with like dead dogs and Hank the cow dog and stuff. Like I can fight dragons and go on adventures with elves and wizards and stuff like changed my life. But I wrote books along with that. And then what happened after that is I got into video games and I remember there's a video game very popular named Halo and I was obsessed with it as a kid and I wrote stories that were very much inspired by Halo. And I I mean, I was just like ripping off like the story, right? But what happens though over time and when I was in bands – I would write songs that were very much like the bands I wanted to be, right? I would write songs like – uh, Rush and Led Zeppelin and Seether and, you know, all these other bands. And I would just, and corn. like I wrote so many lyrics just listening to them. And my, my lyrics ended up sounding a lot like what they wrote. But what happened is I started, you start developing voice by doing that, by practicing, by writing over and over again. You find out what, how you like to say things, how you like to kind of twist certain things. And I feel like when we, are trying to push for students to be original. Sometimes we skip over that step in the classroom of, of just imitate. What do you like? Right. Try to write something like that. Right. 
I mean, mm-hmm. so what? Like, we're, we're not, we're not like we we spend so much time in classrooms talking about plagiarism and how awful it is. But like, and I think this is why we ignore this sometimes in our classrooms. But giving students the freedom to steal, right? Steal like an artist is uh, Austin Kleon's famous book, which is absolutely amazing. But the whole idea of you steal and then eventually it becomes yours, right? And it's it's not stealing. It's not taking something verbatim and doing it. It's it's taking something and going, how can I do that? How can I write a story that does what this does, right? How can I Mm -hmm. write a a paragraph that does, or a sentence that does what this does? The Patterns of Power from Jeff Anderson. Again, we should get him on the podcast, but um, this whole, this conversation, right? This, This imitation invitation is something that I feel like this is, this is like the first step to voice. At least it was for me. I, I, you know, when I discovered all of the people that talk about this, that was like a revelation to me because that's how I learned, right? No one told me to do that. I don't remember being taught in class to imitate sentences, but that's how I learned naturally. And that's how also how I learned how to drum. I had headphones on and I watched my dad and I just played and I just did it until I could do it. And that's literally how I learned every skill. It's how I learned how to podcast. <laughs> it's, it's how I still learn. It's how I learned to be a teacher. But mm-hmm. this invitation, I don't know, is that, do you agree that that's a good first step or do you, do you start before that? Well, no, I think that is a good first step. I think though, when you, you mentioned something, what did they like? Wh- what did they have an opinion about? I mean, a lot of times. Oh, that's good too. Yeah. A lot of times if you can get them to list. So I do a lot of listing as I share with everybody all the time. And so one of one I haven't done this yet, but I usually kind of. Right now, they've just been listing their memories and their experiences, but pretty soon they're going to be listing things that, you know, things that make their, you know, that they have an opinion about, things that they they don't, they like to argue about, and things they like to, you know, just things that they really feel strong about. And I, I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to word it, but I usually do it in things you like to do outside of class, things you... Uh, find yourself doing when you get home, you know, and things you have a strong opinion about. And then they just list all of that stuff. And then whatever's really drawing them, they'll pick that one and write about it. If they have a strong opinion about something, their voice a lot of times will automatically come out. And so now what you can do is have them look over their volume of work that they've done and say, okay, let's reflect which one sounds the most like you and how you feel. And I think a lot of times when they can can kind of pick some things, but you do it, like I said, like that Gary Soto, you know, where you can look at, look at his style. You know, Dr. Seuss, I mean, if you really want to have somebody that has a particular style on the voice, his is copyrighted. So, I mean, you can just sit there and hear his. I mean, it's so distinct. And so, you know, that one's real easy to pick up as far as like if you're really wanting to introduce it as an actual mini lesson. Dr. Seuss is a good one to just kind of let the kids, you know, you can even just like, you know, kind of do the rhythm. And, uh, and then they can pick up on yeah, I mean, exactly it, what's going to happen next. You're, you're exactly right about that though. Right. Is because even mm-hmm. like, even when people accidentally rhyme something, they're like, Oh, that sounds like Dr. Seuss, right? Everyone knows what that <laughs> sounds like. They know Dr. Seuss. So, so that's it, but that's his style. That's his voice. And then, uh, and then, you know, you can, if you, if his, his last book that they actually finished for him was uh differ do for day. 
And when you look at that it, in the back, they show the, um, you know, the book that they had to go off of, and they actually had to imitate him, but yet find their own style. And they had permission to do that. But um, I think it's Jack Perlutsky and one other person. I obviously I can't think of his name. But anyway, Jack Perlutsky was one of the the writers of Diff and Doofer Day, but they actually took his work at, that they had found. He was working on that book when he pa- passed away. And so they uh, they finished the book for him, but they did it in their style. And, and, and one of the things that you can see is the difference between, and, and you can use this to go into something else, but the difference between the artwork that Dr. Seuss would do, and then you take the artwork that these gentlemen did to finish this piece for him, and you can see the difference. Now you can say, okay, which what style? What's voice? Why did this one write this way? Now let's go look at this person's work. Does he do it like this all the time? So uh, illustrators are a great uh, way, or artist is a great way to go in and look at style and voice as well. So if you could bring in uh, Van Gogh, for example, has a particular style when you're dealing with, um, you know, like his Starry Nights and those kinds of things that you can, you can tell a style. So you can even bring artwork in and then now, and and just compare it because writing is your art on paper. Is it not in words? Yeah. I mean, so I'm, while you were talking, I was sitting here thinking of like, you know, I've written, Six novels, none of them very good. My last one I like somewhat, but none of them are very good by my standards. Then I've written two uh, professionally published books. Well, the second one's coming. but And I was thinking of like how I get to voice. And, you know, there's passages like I go back. I don't I refuse to go back and read Teach Me Teacher all the way through because I'll find things that I want to change. It'll just give me a heart attack after a while, like after, you know, the 50th read through and the final edit or whatever. It's just done. And I'm like, I'm not going to look at this again because like I'll look at sections, (laughs) but it's just you can't because author you're never done. Right. It's right. You know, there was a funny I don't remember who it was. I feel like I've misquoted and half quoted so many people today, but I've, I've done, there was a, I think it was, I think it was Christina Aguilera, very random quote of mine, but she was talking about it. It was a long time ago. I remembered this because it connected to me as a, as a writer when I heard it, but someone asked her like, if she would ever like date a fan or like listen to her music. And she was like, well, I can't really listen to my stuff because it's, I'll constantly think of, oh, I should have done a different pitch there or something like that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of actors who won't watch their movies because they'll see something they could have done differently. I think that's an interesting conversation. But when we talk about voice, like in my natural state, I I have a a flow when I'm writing. And this is how I teach. I think about what where, where I go and then I try to recreate that for my students in all the ways that they need. But when I think about my writing, you know, I get into the zone. I have, it's usually when I'm feeling best about my writing, I've been writing for a few days. I'm waking up thinking about it already. I'm in there and I'm just going and I'm, I'm writing and I'm not thinking about what I'm saying and I get it down. And sometimes when I finish, I'm like, that was a horrible day of writing. Sometimes it was good. But after so many days, you kind of, it all blurs together. You don't know what your good and bad days were at the end of a project. Right. And for my students, 
what I'm trying to create, I'm trying to simulate that process. They're not writing books, right? They're not writing enough to do that. Um, but if every day I can get them to write a little bit, right? They start thinking more and more about their writing. They start in the, even in the back of their head. They know it's coming. They know they're going to write in my class every day. They know it's going to be a significant. It's not going to be five minutes. It's going to be, you know, between twenty and forty minutes, depending on the day. And what happens over time, though, is their their mind starts training them for this is writing time. Right? It's like when you wake up. It's your your mind starts just to wake you up naturally. My father-in-law, he always tells me, he always asks me what time I wake up, like if I see him on the weekends. I'm like, I wake up at like 9, 10. He was 9 or 10. He's like, I woke up at 5 today, right? And, you know, he'll it's just because he's been doing it forever, right? He's trained his mind. That's what – and so when we want students to get into that voice, there's so many things that are in the way of kids getting into a voice. Same thing in reading, right? They're getting them to the reading zone. The, the, the obvious things in the way, they're transitioning classes. They're transitioning subjects if you're in a lower grade. They're dealing with home stuff. They're dealing with the stress of grades. They're dealing with the stress of student interactions. Maybe there was a fight in the hallway that distracted everyone, right? Maybe they just got a mean text. Text message. Maybe they just got a good text message. There's a million things that could be happening. And so our classrooms need to be places that, as much as possible, mitigate distraction and focus students on the actual work. And that doesn't mean clamp down. What it means is the expectations are there every day to get there. And what happens is as students practice, they they end up developing that voice a little bit. You know, not every student is going to develop a voice that pops off the page. There's a reason why not everyone can be published authors, right? That's not our goal. Our goal is to get them to be writing enough, and then you eventually kind of develop your voice, and then you know what you're good at, right? Like I know, like I'm never <laughs> – I'm probably never – going to write a highly uh I don't I don't well maybe I could I don't know I was going to say I couldn't write like a highly researched like book like something that is like deep into like like something that uh um what's his name who's the big researcher in education he, his books are always Probst. cited the pros That's a good one who am I thinking of I'm thinking of. I don't know. He wrote Are you talking about Marzano. There we go. Like I'll never <laughs> write like Marzano, right? Like I'll never produce a book well, like that. He's got a whole me- team that works with him, I think. But I could be wrong. So sorry, Mr. Marzano, if I, Dr. Marzano, if I got that wrong. right. But there, there's people like that, right? We, we know those researchers who do stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like that's not really in my wheelhouse. Um, it might could be if I dedicated myself to it, but that's not really my voice, right? I like to use that to heighten certain things, but, um, and that's what we want students to do. We want them to start developing. Like maybe you have a voice for resume writing. You write a really good resume or emails, or, um, you can really write great ads like writing or copy, right? Like writing great copy is highly useful being able to sell something, right? If kids can develop a voice to convince someone to do something, that is a highly sought after skill in a variety of industries, right? So voice doesn't always have to be limited to a poetic voice, a narrative voice, a fiction voice. And the beauty of workshop is we can allow all of those, right? We can Mm -hmm. allow the poets and the narrative writers and the nonfiction writers and the technical writers and the persuasive writers and the argumentative writers and the news writers all to exist within this bubble. Um, And all the, the only thing limiting that is time choice 
and how we structure our classrooms, right? And some of us have more leeway than others. Um, but I think all of that leads to voice. And voice is so, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like my voice changes over time too. And kids are growing at such a rapid rate that their voice might change between months, right? I've had students that change right. literally from the beginning of the year to the end of the year in a massive way, which is why I love our writing portfolios. But so you, it's, I don't know. I don't think it's anything that can be captured necessarily. It can only be cultivated. I feel like that's, yeah, that's fair. good. Not captured, but cultivated. So really the question is, how do we cultivate the voices they already have? That's right. There you go. How do they discover their own voices? Well, I think so. And I think that's where your volume comes in. Yep. Because if they don't, and and we all think things differently. uh, I think having dialogue with each other is another way to help them find their voice. Give them things to debate about or to argue for. Or against. I think that's where Socratic seminars and things like that come in handy, if you know anything about that, uh, where you give them, they read they read a piece, and then kind of one that's provocative, and then they have to discuss it. Then you teach them how to discuss it, and you teach them how to question, and uh, and then that's another way to help them find how they really feel about something. You know, on that note, before we close out, we need next week, and we might change our idea on this, but next week we should really talk about this identity thing that we both did because oh, I think yeah. that's I think that's such a cool multi and because you took it a different way at the end and the, I took it a different way, um, but we kind of had the same core stuff. But I think the the amount of discussion that that spawned and is going to continue to spawn. I think okay. I mean I think we really hit on some good stuff with our students that. Uh, would be interesting to share maybe next week or even even if it's okay. not the topic of the show but to hit on but with that tease ladies and gentlemen this is the craft the draft podcast that's pamela choa i'm jacob chastain we are seventh grade english teachers in the state of texas doing the hard work of public education we love what we do we love reading and writing workshop craft and draft if you're unfamiliar is our journal system we have a few episodes about it if you want to go check that out thank you before i forget everyone that has reviewed the podcast we jumped up to 20 our listenership Mm -hmm. has grown the y'all are blowing up the podcast we don't really know what's happening but we're excited to see all of the new (laughs) listeners and everything this is such a you know a labor of love but but from both of us you know for i I didn't consider it labor but you go right ahead (laughs) (laughs) well Jeez, Pam, regardless, <laughs> our, this is something that we're very passionate about. So if you are supporting the podcast, we really do so uh, appreciate it. Remember, when you rate and review, it's not just to boost our egos. It really does just help the podcast rank. That is the only reason we talk about it all the time. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We drop an episode every single Friday about reading and writing workshops. Submit your questions at craftandjuffworkshop.com or you can submit them directly to me on my social media feeds, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever. But if you submit it directly to the email, it's more likely to be remembered because I get a lot of DMs from a lot of people. So go do that at Craft and Draft. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for another fantastic conversation about reading and writing workshop. I hope you are safe. I hope you are having a fantastic start to your year. I know depending on your state and your city, the beginning of the year is looking different keep doing the good work ladies and gentlemen keep listening to the podcast and keep learning but for everything else know that we are here for you